What up, what up, Meepsters? This is Ryan Rainbro, and if you're hearing this, that means you're about to listen to one of the 99 free episodes of the Meep Meep podcast available wherever you cast pods. But keep in mind that there are new and unreleased episodes of the show on patreon.com slash meetmeetpod. So you'll want to sign up there to hear future episodes and also other side projects like Choo Choo, the show about soundtracks and contribute suggestions for future episodes as well. Will I listen to your suggestion? <laughs> There's only one way to find out. Patreon.com slash meetmeetpod. Bye! Welcome to Meet Meet, the Roadrunner podcast, where each week we discuss an album and the canon of Roadrunner Records and how it informs music today. Let's roll! What up, what up, Meepsters? Today we take a trip down the Pacman path with Cincinnati, Ohio's Lazy, one of four bands signed by Jeff Pacman to the Big Bird, and the third we'll have covered, because third is the word. Their 1994 album, Some Assembly Required, is kind of like what the B-52s making a pop-punk album might sound like, with, uh, you know, more B and, and less 52. But since Some Assembly is required, before we talk to Lazy, it's time for the Coyote Corner of the last episode about Frontline Assembly. Chris McCarthy from death metal band Internal Bleeding externally talked to me about his love for FLA's Millennium and uh, how he lost that CD. With me today is Chris McCarthy of the band Internal Bleeding, known as a slam band, which I sometimes think I know what that means. And maybe not someone you would uh, initially think of as being influenced by a artist like Reese Fulber or a band like uh, Frontline Assembly. But he's a big fan, and I thought we would talk about the influence that that band and that sound and style had on him in his youth and also, you know, continues to resonate with him today. So when did you first get into Frontline Assembly? So even maybe a year or two before I started finding death metal, death metal, my friend Chris Facino, like my best friend, we used to skateboard with these other cats, uh, the Anderson brothers, Scott and Roy Anderson, who are a couple years older than us. But they were into like real underground music. They were into industrial. And this was like, you know, when Nine Inch Nails, heyday, this was probably 96, 97, where it's starting to happen, you know. And um, these kids are coming with serious underground music. So they had even older friends than them who ended up being... Mutual friends that I had later on in life, um, this guy Joe Abrescia, um, and he, I guess he imparted all this knowledge on them of this super underground music. So it went from, you know, Nine Inch Nails, who was cool, and we liked them from the radio, and I liked Down In It, and I liked, you know, Closer to God and all that stuff. But then we started finding stuff that was similar to that. So that was Skinny Puppy and Frontline Assembly, KMFDM, and stuff like that at a pretty early age, like seventh grade. And, uh, so, yeah, I went from Nine Inch Nails to, like, I wanted that, that, I wanted that sound, but meaner and tougher. And Frontline Assembly was really just the epitome of that is exactly what I wanted, especially on Millennium. Yeah, so what was the first Frontline Assembly album that you heard? Because for me, it was Millennium. That was my introduction into them. I think it was actually the Hardwired era stuff. So I got, you know, so you start hanging out with these kids, and they're all wearing different shirts every day. They come to, they come to skateboard with us wearing, you know, Nine Inch Nails shirts, and then a couple of Frontline shirts, and How Job, and Wump Scott, and all these other, you know, late 90s industrial bands and shit like that, and um, yeah, so I went to Borders Music one night with my dad, he went to go buy a fucking book on tape or something, and I was flipping through the CDs, and I found 
Frontline Assembly circuitry single. So I bought that. It was like six bucks. It was, you know, that was perfect for my budget at fucking, you know, 14 years old, you know, and uh, put it on in my little fucking Sony boombox when I got home. And I was just like, this is it. The vocals were sick and it was big, heavy drums. And it, and it made sense to me. It was like Nine Inch Nails was bumped up a bit, you know. Yeah, Circuitry even has Devin Townsend on guitar on it. I think he played live on that tour, too. Jed Simon, also from Strapping Young Lad, played live on the uh, tour. Oh, that's sick. Yeah, I, I wish I knew a little bit more of the, uh, you know, the, the lineup history throughout the years of some of the live players and shit. But, uh, yeah, that's awesome. Yeah, it's interesting for me that, uh, so they only did one tour, and it was for Millennium or Hardwired. It was that Live Wired tour, and it's oh, okay. the two members from Strapping Young Lad, but it's it's funny that neither of them are Devin Townsend, who actually plays on the album. I always thought that was uh, a little funny. Interesting. That is pretty cool. But yeah, so my introduction into it was Millennium, and I didn't know that they were more like electronic before and after that, you know? So for uh, a good while, a couple of years, I thought that Frontline Assembly were basically like uh, like a, like a an industrial band, you know, not different from Ministry, who are also big right, at the right, time. Right. The New World Order song was really happening. Uh, KMFDM that you mentioned, you know, they were a big thing because how I even found out about Frontline Assembly was I used to know somebody, not too different from you, that always wore a skinny puppy shirt. And huh. I was like, what a stupid name for a band. And it was like <laughs> dehydrated looking dogs, on the, which may even be a skinny puppy album cover for all I know. But it was like like seven thin, like defatted puppies on the front. And I was like, man, that's pretty rugged. And they were like, oh, no, that's, you know, it's sick. It's like this aggressive music. And one of the guys went on and did a, another band that you actually might like because they kind of sound like, you know, ministry and other stuff that you're into. And that's how I heard the song Millennium which I didn't have any clue at the time was like a Pantera sample. And I thought that this was what kind of, kind of exactly what you said. I was like, okay, this has got that harder edge to it, but it's still got the things that I like about industrial music. You know, Fear Factory had just uh, been, I got super into Fear Factory with Obsolete. So Fear Factory wasn't a big deal for me, but I kind of knew who they were, but they were still like a, a metal band to me. Whereas, you know, this frontline assembly thing was like the, that, electronic sound that i was looking for with those guitars and stuff in it so when i went back into their back catalog a while later i was like oh this isn't what i thought they were at all i was still into it but i was a little confused that it wasn't all you know this guitar driven electronic music it, it actually might even be their best album a lot of people say hardwired is which is probably true you know the old stuff is awesome caustic grip and corroded disorder uh the blade all that shit that 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 shit's amazing too but uh, I think Millennium, every song is pretty goddamn sick and definitely catchy. And uh, I mean, it's just it's loaded with Pantera and Sepultura and uh, Metallica samples. And it just rocks. There's big, heavy drums behind it. Vocals are aggressive. The synth stuff, uh, the programming is fucking awesome. It's like all the best stuff of Nine Inch Nails without all the experimenting, you know? And the first Frontline Assembly CD I ever got was the Surface Pattern single. So I, I really think about, especially when I do these episodes, how much I miss going and getting CD singles because I have so many of them. Because that was always, like you said, my gateway for it because I didn't have CDs, of course. Some may forget and some may remember all too well. We're like, you know, 20 bucks for a CD. So, you know, I didn't have 20 bucks. Mrs. Brown wasn't paying those kind of funds for mowing her lawn. <laughs> So I had to get the CD single. So, you know, you still got a sample of it. Sometimes it was a full-blown EP, you know, four or five songs. Had a, a couple of remixes of Surface Patterns on it and it even had a, a song that I thought was on Millennium, but it's not called Internal Combustion. That's pretty sick. So I really uh, think that that's something that I wish would kind of 
make a comeback. Definitely won't, because why would it? <laughs> why would people? Make... But, you know, I know singles in general are a big thing now. Sometimes people just put out singles and don't even put out albums. But I really miss that uh, that gateway into getting into a new band. It was a, a cost-effective way for you to kind of take a shot at something that you may not be normally into. Oh, I agree, man. I love I love collecting the singles uh, with, with all, a lot of the bands I love. Metallica, I have every single one, pretty much. All the stupid load and reload ones, everything. But uh, as far as Frontline Assembly goes, I have hard copies of every one of their albums up to, um, I'm going to say, Prophecy. And I have all the singles, the corresponding singles. And I have the Remix Wars album, them versus uh, Decrups. And the only one I don't have anymore in physical form is Millennium, because you're actually going to love this, in, I think, the summer between eighth and ninth grade, uh, my friends and I filmed a backyard wrestling show. <laughs> and uh, Millennium, the song, was my, was my entrance music, you know? And I left it at this kid, Mike Richards' house that I haven't talked to in 26 years now. So I need that CD back. Let's call him right now. See what <laughs> I wish I could get a hold of him. His name was The Troll in wrestling. <laughs> was he short? Mm, kind of, but he was like stocky and like, uh, you know, he had a good shoulder tackle like Mongo. Oh, okay. <laughs> Did he have a cool dog like Pepe? No, I don't remember if he had a dog or not. Now, did you also have uh, an affinity for Fear Factory, or was it just Frontline Assembly? Yeah, I love all the all the Frontline related stuff. So you know, Fear Factory, and then I think you know he's on the um, the, the Nail Bomb live album, right? And I think he did some of the programming with them. But I also love all the other stuff Frontline Assembly did too. I love Noise Unit, Cyberactive. So yeah, I love that shit. Yeah, noise unit's great. It's a pretty much just extra frontline assembly. It's aggressive and fucking awesome. Did you ever get to see Frontline live? I would have seen them this year on that Ministry KMFDM tour, but of course the world ended, so it didn't happen. Yes, I had I had tickets for that, of course, too. Um, the Long Island date, but um, I've seen them twice. One time, I only made it to their last song. It was at Highline Ballroom, and I didn't realize that it was like an early show, and the show was over by nine. I got there at eight forty-five, trying to be you know cool rock star, fashionably late, you know. And, uh, yeah, no, that fuck, that fucking fucked me in the long run. So I only saw one song and I'm pretty sure it was millennium. Uh, and, uh, then the next time I saw them, maybe only a year or two or three years ago in the city, mm, Gramercy maybe, but it was fucking great. With you being such a big fan of that kind of music, have you ever tried to infuse any sort of electronic aspect whatsoever into internal bleeding? Uh, I'd be, I don't know if there's that much room for experimenting in that respect. I know my other band without remorse, speaking of fucking fear factory, I directly ripped off body hammer with that little ping sound. Oh, on a break the anvil. Yeah. I, I use that on a breakdown on a song called time is torment. I totally ripped that off from fear factory. I wish they stayed that course a little bit. I kind of lost, I kind of actually lost interest in the band when Reese wasn't in the band, uh, that, you know, 10 year span. That, um, but I was also really heavy into death metal and hardcore, and I was really focused on that. So maybe those albums are great, and I got to go back and give them another shot. But uh, yeah, I love them, and I, you know, those main albums to me are are just as important to me as my, my you know my main hardcore and metal albums that I love. Mad respect to Chris. You can check out an internal bleeding album. He has his fingerprints all over entitled Corrupting Influence, wherever you steal from artists worldwide. So now we're ready to get lazy. They formed by lead singer and guitarist Steve Schmoll after stints in bands Brainiac and the Tiger Lilies, eventually deciding to do his own thing. And by his own thing, I mean a thing with bassist Suzanne and drummer Megan, who also serve as lead and secondary vocalists throughout the album. 
I sat down with Steve and Megan to discuss how they ended up on and off Roadrunner Records, so let's strut it and cut it. Is this something that you're excited to talk about, or it's like something that you are uh, try to forget about? <laughs> <laughs> I think neither. I just had to dust my memory off. Like, oh, wow, it was like 30 years ago. I think like, you know, five years after we broke up, we might have been like, no way. But now, mm-hmm. yeah. Yeah, enough time has gone by, I guess, yeah. In the overall scheme of things, of course, Lazy is not a uh, standard Roadrunner band because not being like a heavy metal band. But really, in this time frame of Roadrunner between 94, 95, even parts of 93, um, there's lots of like interesting releases that happen. You guys aren't necessarily the the strangest release on the label um, as far as not being Mm -hmm. a metal band. But how did that even happen? How did you guys get on Roadrunner Records? Yeah, um, I think through Brainiac uh, was signed to Grass Records, and I think Tim from Brainiac like like uh, gave Tim or Juan gave it to uh, Camille at Grass, and she was like, "Oh, this is horrible. I'll, I'll give <laughs> <laughs> I'll give it to Jeff." And, uh, yeah, 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 yeah. So Jeff liked it, and. Uh, and yeah, so we were on Rockville, which was Jeff's label. Yeah, with like five, six, seven, eights were on it. And Uncle Tupelo, yeah, yeah. But then Jeff got hired to Roadrunner and he took us with him. Yeah, and it was before like any recording was done or anything. So it was pretty early on. So it was kind of like an experiment, I think, for Roadrunner to try doing indie band. Yeah. yeah, so all the all the Jeff bands seem like they're kind of experiments for Roadrunner. There's Lazy, uh, Kevin Salem, which was like a singer-songwriter thing, uh, The Moon Seven Times, which was like an indie rock project, and then uh, Blue Mountain, which were like borderline a country band. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah. yeah, I remember those bands, yeah, yeah. But And uh, all of them went on to do multiple records for Roadrunner, which I always think mm-hmm. is strange because you would think if it was an experiment after the first one, it's not like any of you guys went gold or anything that they would be like you know what this didn't work out but it seems like all of them got a, <laughs> a second you know, the thing was is like we were the lowest budget band they had like they really mm-hmm. didn't have to give us much money at all to do anything <laughs> mm-hmm. so i mean compared to like several tour type of negative they were getting major tour support and all this stuff so we were kind of like a mm-hmm. cheap throwaway okay here's a three record deal for one thousand dollars we're like oh my god <laughs> it's amazing you know uh-huh. <laughs> I mean, that's, those aren't the right numbers, but, you know, I imagine we're more of like a tax write-off for them. <laughs> uh, mm-hmm. Steve, was your exit from the Tiger Lilies before the formation of Lazy or a result of it? Uh, it was a result. I mean, they overlapped. I, I kept playing in Tiger Lilies for like, I don't know, six months or a year. But I think they got mad that I wasn't coming to practices as much because uh, I had my own thing or because lazy was kind of more uh, what I wanted to do. Okay. So, yeah. Now, the songs, um, I don't want to say split, because it's really more you than Suzanne on Some Assembly Required, but they are, uh, there's trade-offs mm-hmm. as far as who does the vocals. Did that... yeah, Megan, too. Megan's and, on the vocals. Yeah, Megan yeah. does uh, lots of vocals as well. Absolutely. So mm-hmm. was that a result of maybe who wrote the song or did you still have the were you the primary songwriter and then you kind of divided up the the vocal parts or how did that get determined i think whoever wrote the song got to do it kind of Uh, what do you say megan i think pretty much but we also like we were really into like 
50s garage girl bands and the way that they always traded off lo- vocals. So I think we kind of like that mm-hmm. aesthetic too, to like kind of switch off the back and forth of like, you know, reach mm-hmm. and window behind whatever, just the, mm-hmm. the girl boys shout back and forth thing. So I think we worked with that as well as like, yeah, yeah, yeah. We were pretty yeah. into like the Shangri-Las and stuff at that point and like that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Then just to make it less boring. And I think we tried a lot to have all the songs sound different. Well, that yeah. was going to be my next question. So the album is called Some Assembly Required. My hypothesis of that was, because it kind of sounds almost like a mixtape, like every song sounds completely mm. different. What was the reasoning mm. behind that title? Uh, I think it was just the artwork. Suzanne uh, had a model, uh, like a glue together model box of a car. And that was kind of what the artwork on the CD was based on. And, you know, on the side of the box, it said some assembly required. <laughs> Right, you had to put yeah. it together. That is a, but that is a, an aspect of the album that I think is very much its strength and possibly its weakness. That it doesn't sound, it's very much different sounds on every song. You know, everything is is different. There's, it doesn't sound like an album as much as it sounds like a collection of of songs. Would you agree with that? Uh, yeah, I mean, a couple of them we even mm-hmm. did on our four track. Yeah, probably a third or more even of them. Studio, but so I can imagine it was pretty mismatched. Mm-hmm. We, were, we were pretty young. <laughs> yeah, yeah I, was, I was gonna say i think when we recorded it we intended to to do the studio like to have brian paulson record the record in the studio but then a lot of the four track songs didn't sound as good in the studio so we ended up uh using those instead of the 16 track studio ones Right. Okay, that's why you have multiple producers listed because you had some songs you brought to the Brian Paulson sessions already done and then ended up using those instead. Yeah, yeah. And that's like, yeah, we had we, uh, Kevin Salem help do the mastering because it sounded just to get everything to, to fit together better. And we definitely at that point were pretty into the lo fi sound too. So, like, mm-hmm. Brian Paulson had just come off of doing the uh, Babes in Toyland. Is that what drew you to wanting to jump one right before us, right? I don't know. I remember, didn't he do Unrest? I'm trying to remember. Oh I think, Unrest, uh, Unrest was super yeah. right before us, but yeah. I remember he was, yeah. yeah well, I, I guess mean, what I'm asking is what made you want to use him? <laughs> yeah, I can't remember. <laughs> I mean, he recorded stuff on... No, uh, I think the, Jeff Packman's yeah. the one that, that connected us. Oh, okay. Really? I thought I it was my so. idea, but yeah. Was it your idea? I thought so. Oh. Yeah, because I remember he recorded... Uh, on the big black record and I think he did an unrest record or something. I don't mm-hmm. know. And he was cheap. <laughs> I guess I was just making the babes in Toyland con- connection because of the, the female vocals involved. So I thought maybe that was a, and the, you know, they kind of are like a, they're a little bit more polished version of like a garage rock band, especially at that time. Oh yeah. Yeah. yeah that's right. He's Minneapolis. Was he, wasn't he living in Minneapolis? Or yeah. Something? yeah. Okay. Yeah. But remember that tour we did? This is after Suzanne was in the band. I think the second record. We toured through Canada. We played that club in Saskatoon. And mm-hmm. Babes in Toilet had written on a house band mirror. They're like, we played here. And if you played here, you must suck too. <laughs> Said Babes wow. in Toilet. <laughs> wow. <laughs> mm-hmm. What kind of tours did you do to support this album? It doesn't seem like um, that you were like a, a tour heavy band. But did you guys do a lot of touring to support it? I think we did. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, it was usually just us. Uh, that's right, Lucia would book us. Yeah, I mean, there were small tours. It was us with we, small bands. We'd go out like four or five weeks at a time. Like, mm-hmm. we, made it to, we, did, we did the West Coast once with, with Suzanne, I think. 
but most yeah. of us did the East Coast and Midwest. And then when Carrie joined the band, we did a lot more extensive touring then. But so Suzanne leaves the band after this album, and you guys do Lazy Music Group with Carrie. Was there ever a consideration, Megan, for you to just do all of the lead female vocals since you're already kind of doing vocals at that point? No. <laughs> <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah, the, the interesting thing for me about Some Assembly Required versus Lazy Music Group is I like Suzanne's songs more, but I think that mm-hmm. Lazy Music Group is a more cohesive album. I think it like, you know, kind of flows mm-hmm. better and the songs are a little bit better written, but the songs that I like on Some Assembly Required I like more than most of them on the second album. I guess the oh. some of its parts mm-hmm. are better for the second record for me than the first, because I think the best songs mm-hmm. on some assembly required are kind of like what you guys were talking about when there's the, the two, you know, um, uh, I tried to tell you is probably my favorite oh, song yeah. on here. Cause you got all mm-hmm. the elements, you got the, the background uh, vocals with probably you, Megan, right. And Suzanne, and then mm-hmm. Steve doing lead, but, uh, but even the opener, St. Christopher with Suzanne singing, I think is, is awesome. No, it's, it's Megan. Oh, that's Megan, Megan saying. Okay. Yeah, well, there yeah, you yeah. go. Mm-hmm. Little did I know. Okay. So, but you know, but uh, between the first, two, the first album and the second record, like, I learned how to play the drums. <laughs> like, yeah, yeah. <laughs> and we the first record, like I just started playing the drums and, and Suzanne was really green on the bass at that point too. So after like the small tours that we did and playing and playing and playing, by the second record, mm-hmm. I think we were just more solid players. But I think that gives a lot of mm-hmm. character to some assembly required though, because there's a couple songs in particular. Um, I tried to tell you as one, and then also uh, Radio Heart, where it almost sounds mm-hmm. like the song is almost, you know, it's on the brink of falling apart. But I think that that makes it sound mm-hmm. cool, like even more punk rock, because mm-hmm. it doesn't fall apart. But the, mm-hmm. the rhythm of it, you know, like the speeding up of I tried to tell you with the drums and everything. Uh, but I think it makes it sound, you know, like I said, even more raw and punk rock, like you guys weren't trying to sound like to a exact. I don't know. It almost sounds like it's mm-hmm. not to a metronome, maybe. Is that mm-hmm. right? Where you just kind of freeform playing? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, I, I agree with what you're saying. I think the songwriting is better on the first record, but but like, yeah, like Megan says, we played better on the second record. But I don't think we thought out the songs. <laughs> there, no, much. there wasn't a whole lot of forethought going into it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's like <laughs> random words and whatever. Yes. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So when you're playing these uh, songs out live, what is like the the closing song? You know, I know you didn't really have like a, a sing. Well, you have the You and Me single that I have, but uh, there wasn't necessarily a song that was sent to radio necessarily, or was there? Was there? Oh, cut it. Cut it! Cut it! What, what, what do we play last? Is that what you're asking? Like, yeah, I guess. We well, to me, to me, you know, when a band ends the set, it's like with the, the song they think is like their strongest mm-hmm. song. So um, since hmm. you didn't necessarily have like a hit single, what was the, the set closer? I think a lot of times we would do a cover as the last song. You remember yeah. that? Yeah, we mm-hmm. would just kind of randomly learn covers. Uh, and that would just be the last song of the set would be like, oh, let's do a cover. Yeah. Like we did that Cupid Car Club Grape Juice Plus song for a while. Mm-hmm. For the RPM mm-hmm. album? Yeah, we do like... Yeah, but we head- did that as our last song a lot. Oh, okay. Oh, yeah. And uh, like uh, the head coach, uh, uh, God, what song was that? Yeah, uh, Young Blood. 
But yeah, there's a lot of them. We would, a lot of different covers we would do. So like I said, I have the You and Me 7-inch that I got when I ordered a brassy record from the UK when I was like 12 years old. Oh, wow. Um, wow. <laughs> and uh, it has, it, first of all, it has the song listed as You and Me on the cover, but then Me and You mm. on the actual record, which I huh. think is funny. I never noticed that. I, noticed that. <laughs> <laughs> I actually listened to it the other day just to make sure mm. that it wasn't like another version of the song. I was like, oh, maybe it's like you know, an alternate recording, but definitely the exact same song, but listed as me and you. <laughs> um, it has the great gazoo on uh, on the cover from the Flintstones. Suzanne was saying that you guys got like some sort of cease and desist or something for this. The artist is the uh, the Chick Factor, the guy that did the Pavement Boy comic and the Chick Factor mag fanzine. Oh, that's cool. Yeah, yeah. Somehow Jeff got a hold of him. And that seven inch also has the song Broken on it, which is not on the record. So did you mm -hmm. guys record a lot of extra songs for some assembly required that didn't make the cut? I think those were like that first seven inch or that, that seven inch. It's all just four track kind of stuff we did. I think you and me was done in a uh, Megan's kitchen. Oh yeah. And then the other ones were just done in the practice space. So are you also mm -hmm. playing? Well, because you and me is just kind of vocal and and guitar, right? There's not even any mm -hmm. drums. Yeah, on that it. was really me and Steve in my kitchen on and a four track. Mm -hmm. It was like a Marine Girls ripoff, kind of, <laughs> yeah. wasn't it? No. So when you mm. would do that song live, did you just come behind the drums and sing with Steve, or did you guys do that song live, or? We never did it live, I don't what? think. What? Yeah. That's the hit. That's the banger. Oh, yeah. What are you guys doing? Oh, wow. We're young. We don't know what we're mm. doing. Okay. Mm -hmm. Very yeah, cool. That's true. All right. Mm -hmm. <laughs> um, so between Let's Smoke and Pussy Strut, which is a word I feel very uncomfortable saying, but I think it's about an actual mm. cat, so I'm going to... It was like a, it's a song, it's a waitress's song title, and I just stole it. I don't know. Both of those songs sound super like, like go-go songs, like they would be in Pulp Fiction or something. Was that uh, huh. something that was influencing you at the time? It's got that very, like, almost sounds like an organ should be coming in at any moment. Uh, I, I, I think that was more like off the New York noise scene, like the Chrome Cranks and the and John Spencer kind of influenced at that point. Oh, that would make sense. Yeah. Yeah, I was thinking, yeah, like the head coats or kind of garagey stuff. And but. John Spencer's little sister, Muffin, mm -hmm. who was in Brassy, who was the reason I have mm -hmm. your seven inch. So it all comes together. Oh, wow. Huh. <laughs> That's weird. <laughs> Did you guys ever play with other Roadrunner records artists, like in any sort of showcase or anything like that? I don't think so. Do you remember? No, we didn't. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I mean, that'd be unlikely, right? You know, typo negative and then lazy, but. Well, yeah. but other Jeff Packman bands, maybe. I, we might have played well, with Kevin Salem before, like, like yeah, music maybe. But yeah, I feel I like those festivals we did, we were still on Dutch East band shells. Like when we did the mm -hmm. Knitting Factory, that was with Brainiac and Bates of the Locks. But yeah, it seemed like we would go to New York City like every two or three months and kind of like talk to Roadrunner and like do a show at Brownies or something. 
Did they have any sort of input for the second record after some assembly required? Did they have any notes or anything like that? Uh, not really. We kind of had to like, set, it was kind of a question mark as to whether they'd let us do a second record. So we had to like send them demos and I think they kind of renegotiated the amount of money. I think we got paid the same amount as the first record, which wasn't very much. What do you think? Yeah, I feel like we just kept having to send Jeff tapes of what we were working on. And he was just sort of yeah. like, yeah, that's cool. That's cool. Like we never really got mm -hmm. specific input, but. It mm -hmm. just seems like all of the, the Jeff bands after the first record, like I said, you know, because they didn't really invest any money into it. They didn't really care what happened. And then on the second one, they're mm -hmm. a little bit more hands-on like, so uh, we were, we're not hearing a hit on this one. Um, so I guess somewhat in between there for you guys, you're having to at least give them progress reports, but it doesn't sound like they're really intervening in the uh, in the process, right? I don't think yeah. so, but like, like Steve said, we were in New York every couple months playing anyway, so they kind of were watching our progress. Okay. Mm -hmm. I feel like they would have stepped in at that point and been like, you know, stop. Quit <laughs> 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 <But> coming here. <laughs> After Lazy Music Group, they did say stop. And so did you guys continue being a band after that? Or was that the end of the lazy also? Yeah, we, yeah, we kept going. Um, yeah, I think we got a lot better. I get the very, yeah. Yeah. But we never did an album, but I think we got a lot better after that second album. Yeah. But then it all, yeah. Then Carrie left. That was kind of it. And so with having the Suzanne leaves on the first album and Carrie leaves on the second one without, opening too many uh, emotional wounds were there mm -hmm. creative differences with either of those situations or they were just personal differences or what uh seems like with suzanne more so like oh you know he's got this record deal you guys put this record out and now you're gonna do a second album how much of that second album was even done by the time carrie comes in yeah carrie was there for the whole second album yeah I mean, ultimately, Suzanne really didn't like touring at all. And that was, mm -hmm. we were, we really wanted to tour a lot more and that kind of wasn't mm -hmm. her bag anymore. So that was that sort of rift there. Okay. And then we got Carrie and Carrie had been in a band called Miss May 66 in Columbus. So we talked her into moving to Cincinnati and joining our band and she was really into touring. Mm -hmm. And at the end of that yeah. second record touring, I think she just wanted, she was done touring too. She just okay. Was, yeah. I think she was burnt out. We were. I mean, our tours yeah. were like crappy vans. You know, it wasn't mm -hmm. like. <laughs> yeah, we were like staying at people's houses and apartments and sleeping on floors and all that stuff. So. Well, if you're saying four or five weeks at a time, too, those are those are long tours. Those are long times to be away from home and on floors and things like that, especially if that's uh, something new for somebody. Yeah, we, it was it was very unhealthy, wasn't it? <laughs> yeah, yeah. It wasn't easy. I did yeah. it for like 15 years in crappy bands yeah. and so yeah. crappy that you haven't yeah. heard of them either. You're still in Ohio, Steve? Mm-hmm. Do you still do music now? Uh, no, I, I run a record store, but yeah, I don't... I, I did sound for a long time off and on for, got like 10 or 15 years, like a uh, sound engineer and tour managing some. And Megan, when mm -hmm. did you realize that Ohio was a nightmare and you had to get out? <laughs> About 20 years ago. Wow. <laughs> I didn't think it was a nightmare, but I, mm. I always wanted to live in New York City. I finally had the chance to. So Yeah, uh, Steve was saying you live in, you're about to open a restaurant in Woodstock, and that's where Kevin Salem lives, too. So Yeah, I just mm -hmm. found that out. Yeah, far out. One of those, you know, it's, it's stupid. We're opening a restaurant during a pandemic. It's ridiculous, but it's, you know. <laughs> well, I'm sure you had those plans pre-pandemic. Yeah, we did. I'm, <laughs> I'm giving you the benefit of the doubt that you weren't like, you know what the world needs like now. like that asshole that left the city during a pandemic. You're like, God. 
but <laughs> no, no, that I understand. I think that's very admirable that you're, you know, continuing to persevere with that because it's such a, a difficult time to open any business, much less a restaurant. But also, I mean, one benefit you have, and I'm sure I'm telling you things that people have pep talked to you about this whole time is uh, people eat food no matter what. I mean, the restaurant we're opening is supposed to be a live music venue too, which obviously that's going to be a while till we can do that. But what would you have done differently with some assembly required other than, I guess you, you feel like you were more proficient in your instruments later. So do you think you could re-record this album better? Or you just think that, you know, you like the snapshot of time that it is now and wouldn't have done anything differently? Uh, I wish it was, I wish we had more time to produce it better um i wish it's yeah i wish it sounded a little better yeah but i also kind of like how raw it is like the, mm. there's such a like innocent rawness to that record that's like i don't think we mm -hmm. could recreate that i mean i think if we, mm -hmm. if we played that record again and recorded it again playing the instruments better i don't think you'd have the same charm as it has being oh yeah yeah i'm just talking about it at the time I, I i think i wish the guitar sounded better well, like I said, though, mm -hmm. I think that gives a lot of character to it, especially I like the the fact that it sounds raw and like, you know, it's very punk and garage sounding and even the guitars being a little maybe thinner than you would have wanted because Lazy Music mm -hmm. Group, but it sounds way bigger. You know, it does sound mm -hmm. like a big studio production, but it doesn't have that same charm that some assembly required does. So I, mm -hmm. it, I think it's a better album overall. So I'm not trying to say mm -hmm. uh, that I don't think it sounds good. I just think that some assembly required the whole the whole romance I have with it is that it sounds, you know, it sounds like a band's first record that just got a record deal and they're, they're psyched mm -hmm. to go in there and make it. Megan, what is your most fond memory of this time of the band and of your life? I don't know. I just remember it was just really exciting in Cincinnati at that time because there was a whole lot of really great bands that were playing the same time we were. It just felt like a really great, like, scene, you know, in, that, in the mid-90s in Cincinnati, Ohio. And that, that was the funnest for me, just that feeling of we're all doing it together, you know, this is like, Mm -hmm. everybody's supportive of each other there's a lot of great bands came out of that area and it was just it was it was a fun fun time to be around and yeah there was, it was this very competitive in cincinnati of like with all your friends being in bands but then like all these great national bands would come through and you know you get to see them like in a really intimate atmosphere and yeah I don't know, everything was just kind of wide open and just a lot of fun Thanks to Megan and Steve for looking back on Lazy with me. Steve can be found at a record store in Ohio, but it's in Ohio. So go ahead and skip it and check out Megan's restaurant, Pearl Moon. I need you to let me know if they have any vegan options. It's in Woodstock, New York, right outside of Bearsville, New York. And you know who recorded there? Our next episode, Fear Factory. We dig deep with a cyborg shovel into 25 years of demanufacture, so suit up because the machines are coming, and the only way to defeat them is to go to Apple Podcasts and leave me a five-star review. Follow Meet Me Pod on Instagram for all the coolest captions, and tune in next week. I'm Ryan Rainbow, this is Meet Meep, and yes, that's the best I could come up with. Bye! Hey, friends and freaks, this is Rick Jimenez of the Stiff Shots Podcast Network and host of Thrashers, Slashers, and the Road to WrestleMania, which airs every single Monday where myself and a guest discuss a movie and an album of their choice and the WrestleMania from that same year. This week, I'm joined by Brian Byrne of the bands Envy on the Coast, Violent Joy, The Hand That Wields It, and many, many more. 
We're talking legendary metal album Leviathan by Mastodon, the generation-defining movie Mean Girls, and the return to Madison Square Garden for the 20th anniversary of WrestleMania 20. Maybe a story of five about being high on mushrooms also. Grab a caffeinated beverage and join us on Monday on all streaming platforms, the Thrasher Slashers, and the Road to WrestleMania.